Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7 and Mark chapter 11. So let's take those in order. Jeremiah chapter 56, your pew Bible um, is, I think, actually in front of you. I haven't done this before. Usually they've been on the chair, but I think there's a little shelf in your chair in front of you and you can grab a pew Bible. So Isaiah chapter 56, page 616, Jeremiah chapter 7, 635, and Mark chapter 11, which serves as our main text this morning for the sermon, chapter 11, 15 through 19. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. Isaiah chapter 56, beginning with verse 4 and going through verse 8. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jeremiah chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 8. I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and make, false, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come in and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because of all the crowd. The crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they they went out of the city. You may be seated. As is our tradition here at Christ Community Church, we like the word to have just a couple of minutes to sit in your heart. So as you think about it and pray about it, let's just uh, spend a couple of minutes in silence as we sit before the word.
have your Bibles just remaining open to Mark chapter 11. When my children were younger, we would frequently take bike rides through our neighborhood or surrounding neighborhoods, and most of the time we would find houses that were in some phase of construction. And frequently we would stop and, you know, sort of wander through somebody's future home. And it wasn't really that difficult, as you can imagine, as you'd walk in, you try to map out, well, what's, what's this room going to be? And here's the kitchen, obviously, and here's a bedroom, or here's a bathroom, here's a closet. But occasionally, you know, under construction, you'd, you'd run into a room that the, the builder had some sort of design in mind, and you just couldn't quite figure it out. And so we would we'd sort of talk to each other and say, well, what do you think this room is designed for? Over the past 13 months, whether you've been a member driving by this house under construction or whether you've been somebody from the neighborhood walking by, you may have stopped in and walked around at some phase and you walked through and thought, well, okay, I, can, I think this room is that. But you may have reached a room and said, what, what do you think they're going to use this room for? What is this room designed for? And that's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. What is this room designed for? You're obviously very smart people and you figured out that this is the sanctuary. But, but what is it designed for? How would you answer that question? What, what's supposed to happen right here? It's not going to necessarily be happening in other places. What is this room Designed for. We get some help in answering our question by looking at this passage in Mark chapter 11, which is really very familiar and perhaps one of the most unusual passages in relationship to the life of Christ. It's a passage that's recorded in each of the four Gospels, and typically you think of it as being titled The Cleansing of the Temple. Now, just to get a little background here, Chapter 11 is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has is, is finished his three years of um, ministry in Israel, and now he's entering Jerusalem for the last time. And it's five days before the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the Sunday as he enters in, and we think of it as Palm Sunday. And that's because Jesus comes riding in, as you remember, on a donkey and these pilgrims, there's thousands of them, perhaps hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who have come from all kinds of distances to come and celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus comes in and He's riding on the donkey and these thousands of pilgrims, many of whom had encountered Jesus somewhere in their lifetime, many of whom had heard about Jesus' power and authority, and He comes riding in and sort of this impromptu parade begins. And they line the streets and they take off their cloaks and they put them on the ground. And some people run, run around and grab palm branches and put them down to sort of make this red carpet or this royal entrance into the city. And the reason they were doing that is that these uh, pilgrims, including the disciples, were desperately ready for a king. I mean, they had been living underneath this external government, the Roman government that had been so oppressive for so many years. Everybody, it was like at a fever pitch, they were saying, okay, here's a person who has power. Here's a person who has authority. Maybe this is the person who's going to come and kick the Romans out. But Jesus does come to Jerusalem, and He does have power and authority, but he does something very shocking. Instead of entering the city and going to Capitol Hill, you know, where all the crooks are, I mean, it, that's exactly how we would think. Just, hey, if we can clean up Washington, D.C., then, man, we can really have something happening great in this country. 
And somehow we've got all the crooks to get in a very small piece. And if somebody could come in and somebody could have a voice and somebody could have authority and somebody could regulate that area, then the whole country would be okay. And that's exactly what the Jewish pilgrims were hoping for. And Jesus walks into this capital city and He doesn't go to the capital. He goes to the church. Jesus comes to clean house. It's just that he comes to a different house than you might anticipate. See, Jesus is primarily is, isn't primarily concerned about the political condition of Israel any more than he's primarily concerned about the political condition of America. He's primarily con- concerned about our spiritual condition. Jesus isn't about driving out and overturning the Roman government primarily. You see, the biggest problem each one of us is dealing with this morning is not external, but internal. Let me say that again. Your biggest problem today, my biggest problem today is not an external problem. Whether we recognize it or not, each of us desperately needs something to be driven out and overturned. We need the supreme ruler of our own heart to be driven out. And you know who that is? You. You see, in the garden, you decided that you wanted to be king and you wanted to make sure you were in control. And Jesus comes in and says, what what I'm primarily here to deal with is the internal condition of your own soul. You've got a different ruler ruling your life. And He comes in and He's planning on overturning you as the ruler. He's planning on driving you out as the ruler. The highest point in the city of Jerusalem, the focal point, even today if you see it on the news like CNN, uh, the primary picture is the very highest point of Jerusalem and that is the Temple Mound. It's now the Dome of the Rock. You see that golden temple rising in the mountains of Jerusalem. In Jesus' time, it was a massive area. And so it was maybe four football fields long and three football fields wide. It was this huge platform built on top of this mountain, which is why they had to have those big walls, retaining walls around it. And so when you enter into the temple, the temple area is mostly just a series of smaller and then gradually larger courtyards. The smallest courtyards, so to speak, would have been the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the priest goes into this tiny little courtyard and he meets with God on one particular day of the year. And then as you go out, it's a courtyard for priests, and then it's a courtyard for Jews, and then it's a courtyard for women, and then the last courtyard out is the courtyard of the Gentiles. This is the place where anybody can come to pray and intersect with the living God. And that's where Jesus steps up. He steps onto this outer platform and instead of seeing it as, as a place to pray, instead of seeing it as a place to intersect with God, it's a place to intersect with business. What's happened in Jesus' day is that this outer place has become a place for buyers and sellers, money changers. People who've come from a long way away didn't want to carry their animals that they needed to sacrifice, so they just decided they'd get them at the temple. People needed to exchange money because only certain money could be used at the temple. So this outer courtyard that was meant to be as wide open for any kind of people to intersect with God really just became like a flea market or a bazaar. Instead of a place that people could intersect the living Lord. If you could imagine on a scale, one historian said that in one one Passover celebration, there were a quarter of a million lambs 
bought and sold in that area. Imagine the, the chaos of that many pens and that many animals and that kind of odor and everything that would go with that area. And that's the place anybody can meet with God. And it just turned into a flea market and mostly slick businessmen were making money. They were using God to have power over people in order to make money. Can you imagine that happening? I mean, can you imagine living in a time where slick businessmen came into the church and they really just were using God to have authority and power over people just so they could make money? Yeah, yeah, you can imagine it. You see, that happens in all cultures and across all history. It's happening today and you have to be very careful about that. And Jesus walks in and He sees what's happening. And what makes this so unusual is He gets very angry. This isn't, hey guys, can we just take the business outside? You know, let's kind of move outside the walls. He, in some sort of a single-handed, powerful moment, he begins to drive out all the money changers. He's not just driving out the sellers. He's driving out the buyers as well. Everybody has to leave. And he just is turning over tables and coins are fall falling and rolling between people's feet. And in the middle of this sort of chaotic moment, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus has taken two Old Testament prophets' statements and then he's run them together into one statement that we read here in Mark. A verse from Jeremiah, a verse from Isaiah. I want to look at these two verses. Isaiah chapter 56. When you're reading Isaiah 56, you see that Isaiah is telegraphing the design of the true temple. Isaiah has seen a true temple that's being built and he's telling you something about it. And that is that it's going to be, according to verse 8 in chapter 56, a place for outcasts. It's going to be a place in verse 3 and 4 and following, a place for foreigners and eunuchs. You see, originally, foreigners and eunuchs were excluded or cut off from the assembly of God's people. But in really what is a stunning verse, and we don't, we don't feel the impact of it, but Jeremiah is saying, hey, we're going to open the doors to something that you previously haven't been seeing. The people who are foreigners, the people who are cut off, the people who are the farthest out from God now can have immediate access. Verse 5, the people who have no name, the people who have no status. You see what it says? They're going to have a monument inside of God's house. They're going to be at the very center point. The person who feels like, I have no status, I have no name, I'm a nobody, I'm a I'm far away from God. And from what I've done, I feel like I've been cut off from God. And Isaiah is saying those kinds of people, they're going to have a monument inside the house of God. They're going to have special access to me. That's the kind of temple I'm trying to build. That's what I'm trying to get this room to be designed for. So you get a sense of why Jesus is angry. In the fall, I had a friend of mine call me, and he said, Paul, I have two tickets to the sold-out Monday night football game in Charlotte, the Panthers against Tampa Bay. I cannot use them. Would you and Zachary like to come to Charlotte and use the tickets? Well, because he was my friend, I was sad for a few moments and said, Gosh, Bill, brother, I hate it for you. But with real humility, I accepted and so I hung up the phone. I called Zachary. Yeah, we get to go. So he says, Paul, just go to parking lot C. I don't even know what the name of it was. Parking lot C and everything's there. You'll be taken care of when you get there. Great. So we go to parking lot C. We're met by an armed guard. 
Okay, uh, what's your name? My name is Mr. Phillips. Can I have some ID? Okay, Paul, Zachary, right. Okay, can we check your trunk? And they have metal detectors and metal detectors on a car. I mean, I just didn't quite figure that out. But they're checking everything out on our car. They give us this package and say, yeah, you can just pull right over here 50 feet from the front door of the stadium. We're like, okay, this sounds like a good spot so far. We get out, we go up to this sort of will call booth, and they give us a couple of tickets that are field passes. And so we get escorted to an elevator down the field through the tunnel, and we come out onto the field with all the guys practicing and warming up, all the ESPN crew, sort of all the personalities, and (coughs) Zachary and I are out there making sure we're in front of the camera. Here we are, Charlotte. Hey, 15 minutes before kickoff, Mr. Phillips, Zachary, can you meet us back here at this little tunnel and we'll take you to your seats. Great. Okay, we got it. We'll be back here. Came back, go up to the special elevator, go up to the floor that you can't get in by a stairwell or anything, and we're escorted to one of the owner's booths. We have to pass another armed guard. We walk into this sweet area that have just, you know, I just kept trying to think, how can I take some furniture home without anybody seeing me? This is nicer than what I have in my house. Big televisions, buffet, steak, crab cakes. Zachary had the hot dogs and the popcorn. We're sitting there. It was just awesome. Watch the whole game. Anything you want, Mr. Phillips. Anything you want, Zachary. And we just kept saying, most of the time, we were just looking at each other. And we were laughing. We were saying, we're nobodies. We're getting treated like we're special. We have like inside access. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? You and me. Nobodies. People who have done things that we don't want to think about ourselves. And we've done them. And we don't want anyone else to think about them. Jesus comes to say, you, you who are far away, you who feel cut off, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a monument on the very inside. So when Jesus comes in, He's looking at those kinds of people saying, you're ruining it for these people. You're not letting the outside people come in. And He gets angry. What is this place built for? What is this room designed for? It is designed for the worst sinners to come in. People who are far away. To have a life-transforming encounter with the living God. That's what he's telling us in his statement. But then he has this second statement from Jeremiah chapter 7. And he's not throwing open the doors wide in Jeremiah chapter 7 like he is from Isaiah 56. He's telling us, he's giving us a warning in Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, some of you will remember this particular passage but you have made it a den of robbers. Because we just finished studying Jeremiah, and some months ago we came across this chapter, and it's called the Temple Sermon in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was asked purposely by God to go to the temple and deliver this sermon on one of the largest days of the year. It was a festival day. And he said, Jeremiah, I want you to deliver this particular sermon. And when you go, I don't want you to stand behind the pulpit this time. When you go, I want you to sort of figuratively pick up the pulpit. And I want you to go to the front door. And right outside of the front door, I want you to stand behind the pulpit. And this is what I want you to say. This is where you're going to deliver your sermon. As the people are walking into the temple, this is what I'd like for you to say. The Lord sees you. Just try to put yourself in this position. No call to worship. No music to get you moving. Just you come in and you're getting the sermon right away. Right at the front door. The Lord has been watching you 
all week long. And Jeremiah continues and says, basically, he sees you. He sees that your ways don't match your words. He sees that you've been spending the entire week serving yourself. He sees that you've been using people to your own advantage. You've been chasing after materialism. You've been chasing after pleasure. Verse 8, Behold, I have seen it myself. Don't be deceived. Don't be be fooled into thinking you can come into this place of worship at the end of the week and say, we're delivered, we're delivered, we're delivered in some sort of ancient Near East praise chorus. You can't just walk in and be serving yourself all week long and then come into this place and raise your hand and say, we're delivered, we're delivered, we're delivered, and then go out and serve yourself the rest of the week. You can't do that. God's been watching you and He's warning us. You think you're in a safe position. You're not safe. I think it's safe to say that this isn't the kind of sermon recommended by church growth experts. I mean, when you have your largest crowd... And you turn to chapter 9 of the book. They won't say, pick up your pulpit, take it to the door, and say to the people as they walk in, God's been watching you all week long. And don't think you can come in here and repeat the Apostles' Creed and you can just say, I've been baptized and I can take communion and I can sing a praise chorus and I'm going to be delivered. God is, I'm demanding that God delivers me. Because of what I've said. And then walk out of the door and just do whatever you want. It's not a safe house. It's not a den of robbers, Jesus is saying. Because He sees and He knows. When we reduce a relationship with God to a formula or to a day or to an hour, then it quickly just becomes a place for fakes. It happened in Jesus' day. The temple largely was a place for fakes. They had the ritual down, but they didn't have the relationship. And so He's warning us today. He may be warning you today. If you're a sinner... If you're a failure on a massive scale, come in. We, we should have just made the whole back wall two big doors that could open up. Welcome sinners. Welcome failures. Warning to fakes. I don't know what you're I don't see you all week long. But the Lord does. He knows. A few days later, Jesus is not in the temple. He's hanging on a cross. He's not overturning. He's being overturned. Mark chapter 15 records these words as Jesus hangs on a cross. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Jesus, with all of his power and all of his authority, Why is he hanging there? Why doesn't he just keep in the temple? Why doesn't he keep overturning and driving out all the sinners in the temple?
Why is that? It's because we wouldn't be in. Nobody would be in the temple if Jesus stood in the temple and drove out the sinners and overturned the sinners. All of us would be on the outside. And so, Jesus understands somebody, some perfect person has to come and be overturned and driven out on behalf of all the people. And who was that person? Jesus Himself. And so He hangs on the cross and you remember what He says. My God, my God, why why have You forsaken Me? Why are You foreign to Me? Why have You cut Me off? And He's been cut off and He's been driven out for you and me. What's this room designed for this first Sunday morning? It's designed for the greatest failures. It's a place of grave warning for fakes. Religious people who know the ritual, but they don't have a relationship. It's a place to give warning to those people. It's a place to have a life transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, our hope is your hope. And that is that this would be a room, this would be a place, a place to have an encounter. Lord, at some level, everyone here is a fake. Pretending. And so I pray that this serves us well to turn around from that. All of us here are failures on a a scale bigger than we can imagine. Thank you for opening the doors by the substitutionary sacrifice of your son. That He was driven out. That He was cut off. So that we might be clothed with His righteousness and we could boldly approach the throne of God because of Your grace. Lord, I pray now for this offering. You have blessed us in so many ways. And as we worship together in this offering. I pray that you would continue to take this money and meet people's needs spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, that you would multiply it across this city for your name and for your glory. In that name we pray. Amen.
reflecting on the grace of God just moves us to sing how great He is. And the hymn writer is very careful not to say that it's only your voices that sings, but it's your souls that sing. So let's stand together and sing our closing song, How Great Thou Art. between a house and a home is the memories that you have there. So thank you for being a part of this first service. Now I pray, Lord, that as you have remembered your people, oh, Lord, that someone would... have your Bibles just remaining open to Mark chapter 11. When my children were younger, we would frequently take bike rides through our neighborhood or surrounding neighborhoods, and most of the time we would find houses that were in some phase of construction. And frequently we would stop and, you know, sort of wander through somebody's future home. And it wasn't really that difficult, as you can imagine, as you'd walk in, you try to map out, well, what, what's this room going to be? And here's the kitchen, obviously, and here's a bedroom, or here's a bathroom, here's a closet. But occasionally, you know, under construction, you'd, you'd run into a room that the, the
the builder had some sort of design in mind, and you just couldn't quite figure it out. And so we would we'd sort of talk to each other and say, well, what do you think this room is designed for? Over the past 13 months, whether you've been a member driving by this house under construction or whether you've been somebody from the neighborhood walking by, you may have stopped in and walked around at some phase and you walked through and thought, well, okay, I, can, I think this room is that. But you may have reached a room and said, what, what do you think they're going to use this room for? What is this room designed for? And that's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. What is this room designed for? You're obviously very smart people and you figured out that this is the sanctuary. But, but what is it designed for? How would you answer that question? What, what's supposed to happen right here? It's not going to necessarily be happening in other places. What is this room designed for? We get some help in answering our question by looking at this passage in Mark chapter 11, which is really very familiar and perhaps one of the most unusual passages in relationship to the life of Christ. It's a passage that's recorded in each of the four Gospels and typically you think of it as being titled The Cleansing of the Temple. Now just to get a little background here, chapter 11 is a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has is, is finished his three years of um, ministry in Israel and now he's entering Jerusalem for the last time. And it's five days before the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the Sunday as He enters in. And we think of it as Palm Sunday. And that's because Jesus comes riding in, as you remember, on a donkey. And these pilgrims, there's thousands of them, perhaps hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who have come from all kinds of distances to come and celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus comes in and He's riding on the donkey and these Thousands of pilgrims, many of whom had encountered Jesus somewhere in their lifetime, many of whom had heard about Jesus' power and authority, and he comes riding in and sort of this impromptu parade begins. And they line the streets and they take off their cloaks and they put them on the ground and some people run, run around and grab palm branches and put them down to sort of make this red carpet or this royal entrance into the city. And the reason they were doing that is that these uh, pilgrims, including the disciples, were desperately ready for a king. I mean, they, they had been living underneath this external government, the Roman government that had been so oppressive for so many years. Everybody, it was like at, at a fever pitch, they were saying, okay, here's a person who has power. Here's a person who has authority. Maybe this is the person who's going to come and kick the Romans out. But Jesus does come to Jerusalem, and He does have power and authority, but He does something very shocking. Instead of entering the city and going to Capitol Hill, you know, where all the crooks are, I mean, it, that's exactly how we would think. Just, hey, if we can clean up Washington, D.C., then, man, we can really have something happening great in this country. And somehow we've got all the crooks to get in a very small piece. And if somebody could come in, and somebody could have a voice, and somebody could have authority, and somebody could regulate that area, then the whole country would be okay. And that's exactly what the Jewish pilgrims were hoping for. And Jesus walks into this capital city, and He doesn't go to the capital. He goes to the church. Jesus comes to clean house. It's just that he comes to a different house than you might anticipate. See, Jesus is primarily, isn't primarily concerned about the political condition of Israel any more than he's primarily concerned about the political condition of America. He's primarily con concerned about our spiritual condition. 
Jesus isn't about driving out and overturning the Roman government primarily. You see, the biggest problem each one of us is dealing with this morning is not external, but internal. Let me say that again. Your biggest problem today, my biggest problem today is not an external problem. Whether we recognize it or not, each of us desperately needs something to be driven out and overturned. We need the supreme ruler of our own heart to be driven out. And you know who that is? You. You see, in the garden, you decided that you wanted to be king and you wanted to make sure you were in control. And Jesus comes in and says, what, what I'm primarily here to deal with is the internal condition of your own soul. You've got a different ruler ruling your life. And He comes in and He's planning on overturning you as the ruler. He's planning on driving you out as the ruler. The highest point in the city of Jerusalem, the focal point, even today if you see it on the news like CNN, uh, the primary picture is the t very highest point of Jerusalem and that is the Temple Mound. Now the Dome of the Rock. You see that, that golden temple rising in the mountains of Jerusalem. It, it, in Jesus' time, it was a massive area. And so it was maybe four football fields long and three football fields wide. It was this huge platform built on top of this mountain, which is why they had to have those big walls, retaining walls around it. And so when you enter into the temple, the temple area is mostly just a series of smaller and then gradually larger courtyards. The smallest courtyard, so to speak, would have been the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the priest goes into this tiny little courtyard and he meets with God on one particular day of the year. And then as you go out, it's a courtyard for priests and then it's a courtyard for Jews and then it's a courtyard and the, for women and then the last courtyard out is the courtyard of the Gentiles. This is the place where anybody can come to pray and intersect with the living God. And that's where Jesus steps up. He steps onto this outer platform and instead of seeing it as, as a place to pray, instead of seeing it as a place to intersect with God, it's a place to intersect with business. What's happened in Jesus' day is that this outer place has become a place for buyers and sellers, money changers. People who have come from a long way away didn't want to carry their animals that they needed to sacrifice, so they just decided they'd get them at the temple. People needed to exchange money because only certain money could be used at the temple. So this outer courtyard that was meant to be as wide open for any kind of people to intersect with God really just became like a flea market or a bazaar. Instead of a place that people could intersect the living Lord. If you could imagine on a scale, one historian said that in one one Passover celebration, there were a quarter of a million lambs bought and sold in that area. Imagine the, the chaos of that many pens and that many animals and that kind of odor and everything that would go with that area. And that's the place anybody can meet with God. And it just turned into a flea market and mostly slick businessmen were making money. They were using God to have power over people in order to make money. Can you imagine that happening? I mean, can you imagine living in a time where slick businessmen came into the church and they really just were using God to have authority and power over people just so they could make money? Yeah, yeah, you can imagine it. You see, that happens in all cultures and across all history. 
It's happening today, and you have to be very careful about that. And Jesus walks in, and he sees what's happening. And what makes this so unusual is he gets very angry. This isn't, hey guys, can we just take the business outside? You know, let's kind of move outside the walls. He, in some sort of a single-handed powerful moment, he begins to drive out all the money changers. He's not just driving out the sellers, he's driving out the buyers as well. Everybody has to leave and he just is turning over tables and coins are falling and rolling between people's feet. And in the middle of this sort of chaotic moment, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus has taken two Old Testament prophets' statements, and then he's run them together into one statement that we read here in Mark. A verse from Jeremiah, a verse from Isaiah. I want to look at these two verses. Isaiah chapter 56, when you're reading Isaiah 56, you see that Isaiah is telegraphing the design of the true temple. Isaiah has seen a true temple that's being built, and he's telling you something about it. And that is that it's going to be, according to verse 8 in chapter 56, a place for outcasts. It's going to be a place in verse 3 and 4 and following, a place for foreigners and eunuchs. You see, originally, foreigners and eunuchs were excluded or cut off from the assembly of God's people. But in really what is a stunning verse, and we don't don't feel the impact of it, but Jeremiah is saying, hey, we're going to open the doors to something that you previously haven't been seeing. The people who are foreigners, the people who are cut off, the people who are the farthest out from God now can have Immediate access. Verse 5. The people who have no name. The people who have no status. You see what it says? They're going to have a monument inside of God's house. They're going to be at the very center point. The person who feels like, I have no status. I have no name. I'm a nobody. I'm a I'm far away from God. And from what I've done, I feel like I've been cut off from God. And Isaiah is saying those kinds of people, they're going to have a monument inside the house of God. They're going to have special access to me. That's the kind of temple I'm trying to build. That's what I'm trying to get this room to be designed for. So you get a sense of why Jesus is angry. In the fall, I had a friend of mine call me, and he said, Paul, I have two tickets to the sold-out Monday night football game in Charlotte, the Panthers against Tampa Bay. I cannot use them. Would you and Zachary like to come to Charlotte and use the tickets? Well, because he was my friend, I was sad for a few moments and said, Gosh, Bill, brother, I hate it for you. But with real humility, I accepted and so I hung up the phone. I called Zachary. Yeah, we get to go. So he says, Paul, just go to parking lot C. I don't even know what the name of it was. Parking lot C and everything's there. You'll be taken care of when you get there. Great. So we go to parking lot C. We're met by an armed guard. OK, uh, what's your name? My name is Mr. Phillips. Can I have some ID? OK, Paul, Zachary, right. OK, can we check your trunk? And they have metal detectors and metal detectors on a car. I mean, I just didn't quite figure that out. But they're checking everything out on our car. They give us this package and say, yeah, you can just pull right over here 50 feet from the front door of the stadium. We're like, okay, this sounds like a good spot so far. We get out, we go up to this sort of will call booth, and they give us a couple of tickets that are field passes. And so we get escorted to an elevator down the field through the tunnel and we come out onto the field with all the guys practicing and warming up, all the ESPN crew, sort of all the personalities and (laughs) Zachary and I are out there making sure we're in front of the camera. (laughs) Here we are, Charlotte. 
Hey, 15 minutes before kickoff, Mr. Phillips, Zachary, can you meet us back here at this little tunnel, and we'll take you to your seats. Great. Okay, we got it. We'll be back here. Came back, go up to the special elevator, go up to the floor that you can't get in by a stairwell or anything, and we're escorted to one of the owner's booths. We have to pass another armed guard. We walk into this sweet area that have just, you know, I just kept trying to think, how can I take some furniture home without anybody seeing me? This is nicer than what I have in my house. Big televisions, buffet, steak, crab cakes. Zachary had the hot dogs and the popcorn. We're sitting there. Just awesome. Watch the whole game. Anything you want, Mr. Phillips. Anything you want, Zachary. And we just kept saying, most of the time, we were just looking at each other. And we were laughing. We were saying, we're nobodies. We're getting treated like we're special. We have like inside access. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? You and me. Nobodies. People who have done things that we don't want to think about ourselves. And we've done it. And we don't want anyone else to think about it. Jesus comes to say, you, you who are far away, you who feel cut off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a monument on the very inside. So when Jesus comes in, He's looking at those kinds of people saying, you're ruining it for these people. You're not letting the outside people come in. And He gets angry. What is this place built for? What is this room designed for? It is designed for the worst sinners to come in. People who are far away. To have a life-transforming encounter with the living God. That's what he's telling us in his statement. But then he has this second statement from Jeremiah chapter 7. And he's not throwing open the doors wide in Jeremiah chapter 7 like he is from Isaiah 56. He's telling us, he's giving us a warning in Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, some of you will remember this particular passage but you have made it a den of robbers. Because we just finished studying Jeremiah, and some months ago we came across this chapter, and it's called the Temple Sermon in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was asked purposely by God to go to the temple and deliver this sermon on one of the largest days of the year. It was a festival day. And he said, Jeremiah, I want you to deliver this particular sermon. And when you go, I don't want you to stand behind the pulpit this time. When you go, I want you to sort of figuratively pick up the pulpit. And I want you to go to the front door. And right outside of the front door, I want you to stand behind the pulpit. And this is what I want you to say. This is where you're going to deliver your sermon. As the people are walking into the temple, this is what I'd like for you to say. The Lord sees you. I just try to put yourself in this position. No call to worship. No music to get you moving. Just you come in and you're getting the sermon right away. Right at the front door. The Lord has been watching you all week long. And Jeremiah continues and says, basically, he sees you. He sees that your ways don't match your words. He sees that you've been spending the entire week serving yourself. He sees that you've been using people to your own advantage. You've been chasing after materialism. You've been chasing after pleasure. Verse 8, Behold, I have seen it myself. Don't be deceived. Don't be be fooled into thinking you can come into this place of worship at the end of the week and say, we're delivered, we're delivered, we're delivered. In some sort of ancient Near East 
praise chorus. You can't just walk in and be serving yourself all week long and then come into this place and raise your hand and say, we're delivered, we're delivered, we're delivered, and then go out and serve yourself the rest of the week. You can't do that. God's been watching you and He's warning us. You think you're in a safe position. You're not safe. I think it's safe to say that this isn't the kind of sermon recommended by church growth experts. I mean, when you have your largest crowd and you turn to chapter 9 of the book, they won't say, pick up your pulpit, take it to the door, and say to the people as they walk in, God's been watching you all week long. And don't think you can come in here and repeat the Apostles' Creed and you can just say, I've been baptized and I can take communion and I can sing a praise chorus and I'm going to be delivered. God is, I'm demanding that God delivers me because of what I've said. And then walk out of the door and just do whatever you want. It's not a safe house. It's not a den of robbers, Jesus is saying, because He sees And He knows. When we reduce a relationship with God to a formula, or to a day, or to an hour, then it quickly just becomes a place for fakes. It happened in Jesus' day. The temple largely was a place for fakes. They had the ritual down, but they didn't have the relationship. And so He's warning us today. He may be warning you today. If you're a sinner, if you're a failure on a massive scale, come in. We we should have just made the whole back wall two big doors that could open up. Welcome sinners. Welcome failures. Warning to fakes. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't see you all week long. But the Lord does. He knows. A few days later, Jesus is not in the temple. He's hanging on a cross. He's not overturning. He's being overturned. Mark chapter 15 records these words as Jesus hangs on a cross. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, Come down from the cross and save yourself. Jesus, with all of His power and all of His authority, why is He hanging there? Why doesn't He just keep in the temple? Why doesn't He keep overturning and driving out all the sinners in the temple? Why is that? It's because we wouldn't be in. Nobody would be in the temple if Jesus stood in the temple and drove out the sinners and overturned the sinners. All of us would be on the outside. And so, Jesus understands somebody, some perfect person has to come and be overturned and driven out on behalf of all the people. And who was that person? Jesus Himself. And so He hangs on the cross. And you remember what He says. My God, my God, why why have You forsaken Me? Why are You foreign to Me? Why have You cut Me off? And He's been cut off and He's been driven out. 
for you and me. What's this room designed for this first Sunday morning? It's designed for the greatest failures. It's a place of grave warning for fakes. Religious people who know the ritual, but they don't have a relationship. It's a place to give warning to those people. It's a place to have a life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, our hope is your hope. And that is that this would be a room. This would be a place, a place to have an encounter. Lord, at some level, everyone here is a fake. Pretending. And so I pray that this serves us well to turn around from that. All of us here are failures on a on a scale bigger than we can imagine. Thank you for opening the doors by the substitutionary sacrifice of your son. That he was driven out. That he was cut off. So that we might be clothed with his righteousness and we could boldly approach the throne of God because of